This is the Sport and Style Podcast, where the trade of sport collides with fashion and innovation. Your host, Mike Gugat, Neil Schwartz, and John Peters break down the news, analyze sales data, and interview industry influencers. The Sport and Style Podcast is on now. This is episode eight of the Sport and Style podcast. I'm your host, Mike Gugat, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Googs, how's things been out on the left coast? Uh, it sure beats being in a humid, muggy D.C. for the month of June. Well, this is uh, Neil Schwartz, also known as the Grand Poobah, coming to you from Boca Raton, Florida, where it is currently 86 degrees and probably about 86% humidity. Uh, summer in Florida can be a little bit rough with the heat the humidity and it's uh, pretty sticky out there i uh had my umbrella out today neil walking to work see in florida you guys are pretty spoiled you get to drive everywhere but we have to walk in dc and uh i was pretty drenched this morning walking to the office well let's get going guys on the podcast today will jay-z rock the hoops nation with puma basketball Apparently, first order of business at Puma was to uh, sign uh, DeAndre Ayton, uh, the projected first-round pick in the NBA draft. And Facebook is poking sports fans, uh, you know, with live streaming of, of sports to hopefully bring them back to the platform. And our special guest is Josh Luber, the CEO of StockX. Neil, tell us a little bit about Josh. Well, Josh, as, as Mike just said, is the CEO of StockX. StockX is probably the leading site for uh, exchange or trading of, um, you know, collectible sneakers, collectible handbags, collectible watches. And now they're getting into collectible streetwear. And uh, John, ha- uh, Josh has created a, a wonderful platform where uh, people can buy, sell, and trade um, various collectibles and sneakers, as I said, and the other items. And uh, he was a great interview. And he's He's someone that really understands, uh, you know, what's going on out there in the uh, within the secondary markets. JP, how's your portfolio doing? Uh, what portfolio are you talking about? Your StockX portfolio. Oh yeah, uh, not too hot because I own zero luxury goods. But Josh was Josh was awesome. I can't wait for our listeners to be able to hear what he had to say. All right, well, let's get going. guys jay-z the president of puma basketball what's what's it mean well this is really an interesting story because there is so much to unpack here mike i think that you know number one is that you know you've got puma just making a decision to go back into the basketball category and i think you know before we get to the next bullet point you know let's look at the basketball category real quickly um year to date according to ssi data we show basketball down um, about 7%, um, <coughs> excuse me, total um, year to date. Um, we show fashion basketball, which is the bigger part of basketball, actually flat, while performance is down significantly in the uh, low 20% range. And we also show kids down around um, the mid-teens. So, you know, the basketball category is not one that is growing at the moment. Um, the other, I think, statistic or the other piece of information I'd like to share is that between Jordan and Nike, um, they have 94% of the basketball market share. 
Um, Under Armour has around three, three point six somewhere, and then the others are basically just picking up the rear and and getting the crumbs. So the basketball category, you know, for Puma to leap into basketball, I think presents a lot of interesting challenges, a lot of interesting subjects. Um, you know, number one, um, and John and I were talking about this yesterday, but you know, can Jay Z, who has been named the head of Puma Basketball Operations, can Jay Z do for Puma what Kanye West, in a number of ways, was able to do for Adidas? John, what do you think about that? You know, if you would have asked me this right when the news broke, I probably uh, would have laughed the idea out of the room that Jay Z could could have some weight, uh, enough weight to make Puma relevant and quote unquote put them on the map. Uh, 24 hours later, while I had it, uh, let it simmer and I read a couple of other different uh, viewpoints and, and different stories, uh, I actually think this is pretty bullish for Puma. I'm going to probably go on the opposite way as, as both my colleagues here. But, uh, and and I'll, I'll break down a couple of reasons why. Uh, you know, look, is Puma going to be able to take 5% market share from Jordan, Nike, anybody? Probably not, not in the near future. But in terms of culture and lifestyle, and Neil, we should unpack some of those numbers uh, you mentioned on how you differentiate between uh, fashion uh, and performance basketball. But just real quick, you know, I was reading the quotes of the number one projected draft pick, DeAndre Aiden. And he mentioned that, you know, growing up uh, in the Caribbean where pop star uh, Rihanna grew up, uh, as well as Usain Bolt. And he even alluded to the fact that they're both Puma athletes or celebrities, rather, and how that really drove him to make this decision. And I just, you know, pause for a minute because I think that uh, obviously Rihanna and, and Bolt, two, two separate categories than basketball, but I think if you read through the quotes of, of the Puma creative director, Jay-Z and even, even Aiden, I think you see a common thread and that's creativity and creating these experiences for their fan base. And so I, am, I, I do think it's going to uh, pan out for Puma uh, in a couple of years. And, and look, I mean, how do we define success? I think that's a very important question. Uh, the biggest basketball star Puma's had uh, in the last 20 years was Vince Carter in like 1998, right? Or mid 90s. Uh, and so, you know, it, it did Aiden go to Puma because of Bolts and Rihanna? Maybe. Is that is that a big difference maker in the basketball world? Maybe not. But I do think in terms of the Kanye quote unquote impact, your favorite thing, Neil, to talk about, I do think it, it'll, it'll hold some weight. Well, the interesting thing is if you look at the quotes from uh, DeAndre Aiden, he talks about it wasn't about the money. Um, he felt it was about you know, being able to build something and to be a part of something. Um, you know, it's interesting, the the approach that Puma's taking, it's almost a three-legged stool approach. Um, number one leg stool, of course, is, you know, bringing in Jay-Z to run the basketball operations. Uh, last night, I was actually listening to uh, Sirius XM Radio, and they had someone on um, very close to the situation on uh, one of the channels. And, you know, they said that the way that Jay-Z and Beyonce – you know, he kept saying that Jay-Z and Beyonce, and they really are a team, um, you know, they will work on this together. Uh, I, I went and checked when they said Beyonce, how many Instagram followers uh, Beyonce had. It's actually more than Kim K. So, you know, I do think that Jay-Z from a pop culture standpoint, um, influencer standpoint, uh, tastemaker standpoint, you know, I think he is a, a real good choice and an interesting choice to try to, you know, lead this uh, move into the basketball category. 
um, you know, first I'm going to jump in. I'm going to jump in, Neil. I, I think it's a great move. I think that he's a proven producer in, in almost all aspects of entertainment. And I think we can all agree that basketball has now in many ways become entertainment. And it seems that brands actually need, you know, a producer in this category because it doesn't have all the traditional channels of, of retail. And then it's also seasonal. So you need somebody that can actually bring quite a bit of attention to it. And I, I think that the other thing we've been seeing is that it, it, you know, is about blending lifestyle with performance. And I think, you know, you make a great point about Nike and, and Jordan and the 94% market share that they have. But I think this is going to make things really difficult on a brand like Under Armour that doesn't actually have the lifestyle thing dialed in. And, uh, and even for that matter, you know, an Adidas that yes, they have Kanye, but you know, Kanye is not out there barking about basketball. He's barking about other things. Well, what's also Mike, what's also interesting about this is that, you know, they have tightened their relationship with uh, Walt Frazier. Um, of course, the star from the New York Knicks back in 1973, Puma originally uh, partnered with Frazier to create the Clyde basketball shoe. And, and frankly, that may have been one of the first expensive shoes that I ever owned. Um, I think I remember buying like a blue pair. I remember turning all my socks blue. But, you know, really, I do remember, you know, my first pair of Puma Clydes. And, and you know, very upfront, Puma has said, look, we are going to not just look at the basketball category at this performance level and fashion level, but we're also going to look at it at this casual athletic level. And, and this is something actually that the Jordan brand has not really been able to do um, real well is that while they've established themselves clearly as the dominant fashion basketball brand, um, they really haven't been able to kind of expand that out into casual athletic or the dreaded A word athleisure, of course. So, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, interesting opportunities, but I also think there's a lot of interesting challenges. I'm sure they're going into this with eyes wide open. At least I hope they are. Well, hey, Neil, Neil, real quick, we we haven't really mentioned the other facet of this, with which is you know Jay Z's Rock Nation's portfolio, whatever he's doing with that, you know, from boxing to you know Des Bryant as a client, his agency, and he has you know Danny Green and, and some other uh, uh, NBA players. But so, question for both of you: Do you think this is a way to successfully leverage his current roster and you know? I'm sure his roster in basketball is going to grow in terms of talent representation. Do you think that that's any way to leverage the Puma brand? Well, I, it, that's a tough question for me to answer. I think this is going to be, you know, I hate to use this word because it's a marketing buzzword, but this could be a new paradigm um, for our industry that was really started by Adidas and its relationship with Kanye West. So, you know, and now of course, Under Armour has a relationship with The Rock, Puma has their relationship now with Jay-Z and, and Jay-Z though has such a far reach and far, um, you know, right now they're doing that 444 tour and um, you know, there's going to be millions of people that are going to probably be packing stadiums or, or arenas and, and be a part of the tour. And, you know, it's going to be good. I assume for Puma in terms of visibility, you know, I, I think they could be establishing a new, uh, you know, a new paradigm. Got to use that word twice. I want to come back, John, because I think what you're getting at too, though, is 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 how does he leverage his agency against this, you know, relationship? And the only other example that I can really think of was in the '90s when Nike created their sports management uh, arm, and I think Tredi Masri and a handful of other guys managed it, and you know, they had everybody from Alonzo Mourning and Penny Hardaway, and and basically Nike was was managing. Um, 
you know, those athletes. And I think it was almost too close to home to the brand. And I think that your, your bargaining power uh, also has to have other targets, if you will, uh, you know, to, to drive up the value. And so um, I definitely think there will be people in his, you know, stable of athletes and performers that will certainly benefit from this relationship. But I would assume that, uh, you know, it's not limited to just Puma. Well, and and just to piggyback on that, I got a, one more question, not that we're 21 questions in interviewing you guys, but but I'm, I'm, I'm so interested in this because forever, Neil and, and Mike, you guys remember, and, and still today, Nike, is 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 clearly about one thing and they've always been about one thing that's the elite athlete right so um i just wonder how much longer until we see nike partnering with others you know they have the kevin hart run relationship but i'm just curious do you guys see this as nike having to make a move to sign uh, a pop culture influencer or more because i'm sure they've done some things with uh some rappers i think future or somebody but anyway do you do you see that in the future i I think that this represents a much bigger opportunity than just, let's say, one shoe or, um, you know, a, an athlete, you know, representing one shoe. I know that Nike has a few of these um, relationships now. I forgot. Um, I actually forgot some of the, you know, names of some of the rappers or some of the uh, hip hop artists that they you are. Mean you don't with. listen to rap, Neil? Now, hip hop is not one of the, uh, let's just say, not one of the music genres on my uh on my iPhone playlist. You don't have Drake on your, uh, you know, bedtime playlist there. No Drake. The last, uh, I think the last hip hop song I might've listened to might've been, uh, does uh, Beyonce uh, count with uh, all the single ladies? Uh, I do have that on one of my on one of my workout mixes. We'll, we'll let that count. We'll let that count. <laughs> you, 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 you did not go. There. Well, I, you know what, guys? I was thinking last night. Do I want to cop to that or not? But uh, so I figured. You know, it's out there. Why not go for it? But, you know, I do think what's what's going to be interesting is that the brand, the Puma brand is really focused, you know, more on soccer and running and golf. Um, so I do think this means a little bit of a shift, um, you know, for Puma. Um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, their relationship with uh, Rihanna. Um, yeah, Rihanna. You know, also, uh, you know, Puma, Rihanna is a uh, Jay-Z um you know, Jay-Z uh, talent person. So, I mean, I just think there's a lot, there's a lot going on here and there's a lot that could work. The one, you know, again, eyes wide open, you know, the basketball category just is not, you know, the fashion category that it was even two years ago. So, you know, the question is kind of tastemaker, kind of, you know, can an influencer like Jay-Z, you know, bring this category back into focus? You know, I wish we would have known this, um, when we interviewed Josh Luber, because I would love to get his opinion on this particular subject. I would have loved to ask him for a pair of Jay-Z kicks, Puma edition that are eventually going to come out, right? Over under that that happens. Yeah, the last time the last time I asked Josh for a pair of shoes, he says, oh, I can get them for you, but it'll cost you $640. I was like, uh-uh. <laughs> that's, the, that's the marketplace. But hey, great reminder that our guest coming up is Josh Luber. And uh, one last story to get to that uh, certainly captured my attention is, is that it seems that Facebook is starting to uh, poke sports fans in hopes of bringing them back to the platform by live streaming um, sports. And, uh, you know, I'm going to would love to get your guys' uh, take on this. Things that jumped out at me is that, you know, and I think, Neil, you'll appreciate the, the, the whole data part of this. And, and certainly it has not been all positive news for Facebook in, in recent years as it relates to data, but they will have a lot of data on fans and, uh, and 
you know, ways to target advertising. And then when you think of the experience of fans being able to watch games and the engagement, uh, you know, between fans that uh, root for the same team, between rivals, the potential for players to engage with fans. I just think there's there's all sorts of opportunities now to, you know, to monetize this, not just for Facebook, for but for you know, brands and retailers and and merchants that actually make licensed goods uh, uh, in this space. And I would say the other thing that I would love to explore with the both of you, does this present an opportunity for lesser known sports such as surfing or skateboarding or climbing to actually start to build a better fan base or, or grow the knowledge around their sports? I mean, I'll jump in real quickly, but I do think it is an opportunity for a number of these smaller um, kind of niche sports. I hate that word niche sometimes, but I do think it will be an opportunity for some of these smaller niche sports to really kind of get their product out there um, to somehow take advantage of Facebook for fan engagement um, and, and even sell product. I, I mean, I don't see any downside to any of this. I also don't necessarily see the NFL or the NHL or the NBA or major league baseball necessarily jumping on this that quickly. Um, that doesn't mean to say that they won't figure a way to leverage it, you know, pretty quickly, but I just don't see them jumping on right away. Um, I just think it may in their minds, it may undermine a lot of their, let's say primary media outlets and, and primary sources of revenue. But, you know, everybody is looking to cut the cord. It appears Mike, um, you know, I can't, you can't go a day without, you know, seeing ads, whether it's, you know, for direct TV, um, you know, their uh, internet, you know, their IP based service or, you know, YouTube Red or, or, you know, Hulu or whatever it is. So, I mean, you know, everybody's cutting the cord. And uh, at some point, you know, who knows where this is all going to land. It, it's to me, you know, as, as in the older generation and, and someone that's been used to kind of things the way they were, I, I, I find this all very mind boggling and also really confusing. So, you know, JP, you're, you know, you're the guy that, you know, really has, you know, kind of grown up with this or really been exposed to this, you know, cut the cord and, and availability. What do you think about it? You know, I, I think it's brilliant and inevitable, right? And, and Neil, I got to correct you a little bit on the Major League Baseball. I think Facebook cut a deal recently for this season that they're showing, I think, you know, a quarter of the games via Facebook Live or something. But we, we should get a stat boy uh, as much as our, our facts are incorrect. But it, there's something there. They're, they've already cut a streaming deal. And then Twitter has done something. I think for, for the impact for merchandise, though, is, is really incredible to think about uh, when you think about not only – real-time purchases which you know if you look at amazon and twitch with their gaming stream platform when you know drake logged on they got six hundred thousand concurrent streams which to put that in perspective uh i don't think mls any season opener has gotten more than four hundred thousand. so just to chew on that for a minute but uh, i think with technology and, and continuing to adapt uh with augmented reality for example being able to look at products real time with people wearing it uh, or, or playing in it, I think has tremendous uh, implications for industry positively. And, you know, you, you, we talk about niche sports just to bring up a quote unquote niche sport that you would think of Facebook and WWE, the, the wrestling network, uh, you know, partnered up with, with a streaming package. And most people would not guess, but, but uh, WWE is one of the most stream events worldwide. Uh, in fact, if you look at their stock price this time last year, it's gone up about 300%. I think that they've had uh, 
nine million or something paid subscribers to their network. So in uh, it's it's just interesting to watch this unfold. Other parallels and other quote unquote niche sports, and and I do think the um, it's a very nascent thing. It, it's going to continue to evolve, and eventually uh, you're going to have you know the big four: Apple, Facebook, Netflix, you know Amazon, Google, all these guys competing for the rights. I just don't see uh, major traditional TV networks. Uh, broadcast networks rather being able to compete with the dollar it's going to be outrageous it's funny the one thing i didn't hear you say was any of the traditional media companies or like microsoft even you know like comcast or uh you know i guess now the new at&t time warner um you know together merger uh you know it, it seems to me in some ways these traditional media companies are getting left at the gate John, I think you did bring up the one incredibly valuable point, and that is on the uh, licensed merchandise side. You know, I do think that's going to be a real boom, and I think it's going to be a real boom for people like Fanatics. Um, you know, Fanatics basically has pretty much taken over, um, you know, in terms of the um, licensed merchandise for most of the leagues and, and teams. And, you know, they are by far now the largest, uh, you know, whether it's online retailer or brick and mortar retailer of you know, licensed products. And I think this will be a real great opportunity, you know, for the folks at Fanatics to really be able to leverage those platforms for their products. Absolutely. And I believe the NFL, I think all four leagues are investors in Fanatics. Um, I don't, I don't see that failing anytime soon to your point. And, you know, I mean, look, how much longer until we're watching Thursday night football on Amazon prime uh, and a pop-up bar comes up and says, hey, do you want this game-worn jersey or do you want such and such? The real-time uh, merchandising component is, is going to be something to really, really watch out for. Customize your Bill Belichick sweatshirt. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll send you some scissors. Hey, guys, we, uh, we've got Josh Luber coming up. Let's get to Josh. Welcome back to the Sports and Style podcast. I'm here, of course, with my co-host, Mike Gugat and John Peters. And we are really excited that we have Josh Luber of StockX um, on as our next guest. I've been lucky enough. I met Josh a number of years ago at a, at a meeting or a dinner um, a number of years ago. And uh, Josh has uh, created this unbelievable website called StockX. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Great. Josh, I think there's probably a lot of people out there that really don't know about the history and the story of StockX. Can you kind of give us the uh, kind of the history and then the story about what StockX is all about? Yeah, for sure. Uh, we'll we'll do the uh, abbreviated version because uh, it's uh, it's kind of a, a long and crazy story over the last um, about six years as we started this. But the the short part of it is originally I created a company that was called Campless. And Campus was the Kelly Blue Book for sneakers. It was a data company. We were essentially analyzing eBay auctions to figure out what are sneakers actually selling for on the secondary market. So we had this, this price guide-like business, like a Beckett or Kelly Blue Book. And over the next couple of years, as that was gaining traction in the sneaker industry, people were using it. We started selling data. We started a blog that was kind of like Freakonomics for sneakers. But really, the whole time is trying to figure out, like, what is the bigger business here? What, what can you do with this? And we'd had this idea that since we understood, call it asset pricing, right? We understood the value of one pair of sneakers. 
then we could actually create sneaker portfolios. We could look at someone's sneaker collection the same way you look at a stock portfolio and just track the value over time. And then the logic was, well, if we understood asset pricing, if we understood portfolio pricing, then perhaps we could actually create a, a stock market with sneakers. And so that was the, the basis of the idea. And there's a big, long, crazy story in the middle that involves me partnering with Dan Gilbert, who's the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers and Quicken Loans and, and, a, and a whole lot of other companies. And essentially, he had a, a very, very similar idea around using stock market mechanics to create a better marketplace. And so what StockX is today is it is, a, it is a consumer marketplace, right? Think eBay. All we do is connect buyers and sellers, but we do that in the exact same way that the stock markets connect buyers and sellers. And there's a whole lot to that, and we're happy to talk and go into all the weeds into what that means. But at the core, it's around the data, right? It's around what is the market price of something. And we've started with sneakers, and today we have a very big and growing business in sneakers, We've expanded to streetwear, watches, and handbags. So we have four big categories, and we're literally creating a new form of commerce around stock market mechanics. I remember when you when I met you when you were first doing Campless, and uh, it was all about the sneakers. But you know, speaking of sneakers, Josh, you know, we talked a little bit on our uh, podcast previously about the Jordan brand, and, and I know you and I have talked about this a number of times. How I felt, and and you and I agreed on this that. Your data in many ways was kind of a leading edge predictor for a specific category of, of shoes or type of shoes. You know, do you still feel that your data um, and, and the primary and the secondary market, excuse me, is a predictor for what the primary markets are going to do? Well, for certain categories, right? I mean, certainly um, the there's no secret, right, that over the past, I guess now, you know, five years, six years, as Foot Locker's business has grown, as, you know, the, the Jordan business has grown, it is, um, and, and even the last three years now with Adidas, that it's at least um, mirrored the growth of those brands in the secondary market. Now, not to say there's a, a direct correlation there, but there's certainly something um, to be said around leveraging the model of, of scarcity, of putting less products out at retail than, um, than there are people that want it to create sellouts at retail, you know, to create a secondary market and all the hype that goes with it, and then the halo effect that, that goes around it. So you know, for that category of shoe, right? I mean, it's really interesting if you look over the past couple of years where, you know, four years ago, five years ago, when, when Jordans flew off the shelves and, and every one of them sold out in seconds. And then, you know, by the end of 2016 and 2017, where Jordans were sitting on shelves. And, um, you know, during that period of time, like in the beginning of that, Nike and Jordan made up 96% of the resale market. I mean, it was all Nike and Jordan. But by 2017, when Jordans were sitting on shelves, right? I mean, Jordans were down to probably... Uh, you know, I mean, Adidas was 60%. So you have to take 40% of just Nike and Jordan. Jordan was probably, you know, half of that. So, you know, and, and we're starting to now swing back a little bit in the opposite direction. So whether it's a, it's a direct leading indicator, but there's absolutely a correlation between the secondary market and the brands for this product category. Because our, our data, Josh, in the, uh, category, the basketball category, specifically for the Jordan brand, has really shown a little bit of a, kind of a deceleration um, and, and actually has gone into negative territory. Now, I know part of that in the primary markets is due to the strategy that Nike and Jordan are employing right now where they're, uh, you know, we've talked about this, where they're pulling uh, pulling back on distribution, pulling back on the number of launches, pulling back. So I do understand that part of that is 
you know, as a result uh, of Nike strategy. But I also claim, though, that the generational situation has a lot to do with the Jordan brand in particular. What do you think about that? About the fact that the kids that are buying Jordans today never saw Jordan play, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, um, you know, I am, I I just turned 40 years old, right? And I I have literally the exact same story as every other 40-year-old sneakerhead, right? Which is I grew up and I played basketball every day and I watched Michael Jordan play and I always wanted Air Jordans and my mother would never buy me Air Jordans. And as soon as I got some money, I bought Air Jordans. I mean, we literally all have the exact same story. And there's just so much more that goes into that for someone my generation to put on a pair of Jordans or want to buy it than the kid today. And, you know, maybe that kid today knows a little bit of his history or or watched some of it. But up until, call it 18, 24 months ago, when the oversaturation of Jordans really became apparent, up until then, regardless of whether you ever saw Jordan play or whether you even knew he was a basketball player, man, that was a, a good investment. That was an instant arbitrage investment. If you could buy a pair of Jordans in 2013 for retail for 160, well, man, that thing was worth at least $250 instantly. And so who wouldn't buy anything that cost 160 and is worth 250? And so that generational difference, you know, maybe didn't matter. But once it gets to the point, as Jordan and Nike have been oversaturating Jordans, where a $160 pair of Jordans is worth $160, it's just a decision, a different decision matrix. And so where my generation may still buy that, well, that, that kid today who just knows Jordan as a possible investment item, well, maybe he's going to go buy a Yeezy or maybe he's going to go buy the new Travis Scott Jordan or, or he's going to buy, you know, um, uh, Drake's shoe or, or whatever. There's just a, a different thing. So, yeah, it absolutely plays a, a part in it. But it's also like one piece of the overall demand. You mentioned Yeezys. Um, how is the Yeezy brand still? Is it still selling pretty well, Josh? Yeah. I mean, look, the, you know, at StockX, our business is, is where the secondary yes. market and um, whenever there's a Yeezy release, um, our business goes through the roof. And, um, you know, for, the, for 2018, just looking at the, the data in 2018 alone, um, you know, Adidas, which had sort of topped out at a little over 65% in 2017, it's only about 30% of our business so far in 2018. And that's really because there hasn't been a lot of Yeezy releases. And in particular, Yeezy 350s, that's really what drives the dollars and the volume and the last big easy 350s were at the end of, of last year. So, but when that does, and when that comes back, like, you know, we will see that. And my guess is by the end of 2018, we'll see that 30% Adidas number probably climb closer to 50. Because look, man, when they put the Adidas, like the Yeezys out there, like that's what everyone goes for. The resellers, the business people, the kids, like the sneakerheads, like that's what it is. And, you know, we can ask the question, I'll just go ahead and say it. Like all that crap with Trump had no effect on the secondary market for Yeezys. Hey, Josh, uh, Mike here. Um, You know, it it seemed for a long time it was very predictably irrational for these brands to try to fight the secondary marketplace. Have you now been embraced by the vendor community? Um, I wouldn't say uh, fully embraced, but um, yeah, look, you know, our history with the brands back when in 2013, when we first started becoming a little known and campless, in the beginning, every conversation sort of went the same and it didn't matter which brand. The first conversation was, oh, you know, this is some really interesting data. And then the second conversation was, oh, you know what? Uh, this is the resale market. Maybe I better talk to my boss. And then the third was total silence, no returning emails, no returning phone calls, right? And like, I get it. I totally get it, right? Like Nike in particular has had a willful blindness policy towards the secondary market for, you know, 33 years, dating back like to the first Jordan. 
But in, we've seen in a lot of other consumer contexts, you know, ticketing 10, 15 years ago was the same way. And now StubHub is the official resale marketplace of Major League Baseball. Primary and secondary markets in every business eventually work together because they're not going anywhere. And we're starting to see that inflection point with sneakers right now. And I wouldn't say it at the brand level, but at the person level, there are definitely people in every brand that fully embrace us for sure. And there's definitely some people that still have the sort of older mentality of, of, of the way it should be, but that's okay, right? I mean, that's, that's the way we get there. And you've seen some of these. I mean, last January, uh, Nike did a release with us, right? Nike released LeBron's first retro, the Air Zoom generation, on StockX first, before into any other retail channel, before into Nike.com, before into Foot Locker. So they were absolutely starting to go in that direction. But you know, when we become the official resale marketplace of Nike, the way that StubHub became the official resale marketplace of Major League Baseball, that'll be the like, uh, you know, that the capstone of full embracing. I, I'm in LA right now where I, I once lived and I still spend a lot of time and I would cruise by places like Undefeated or, you know, Sporty LA. And it was seemed like every single week, there would be kids camped out, you know, blocks long with security and everything like that for whatever uh, the latest drop was. And that scarcity model is something that a brand has to be really disciplined about, you know, and, and as you mentioned, things kind of slowing down a bit for Nike and, and, and having picked up for Adidas, you know, are, are the brands being disciplined about it? Um, it's a hard question to answer in the aggregate because really every release is a, is a different and unique game, a different and unique opportunity to play that. And so I think as a whole, um, you know, I would say 2016 and 2017, Jordan brand in particular was not that disciplined and, and we're putting out um, too much. But I think that, you know, over the last, um, you know, six to nine months, they're getting back to a place where they're, they're using that strategy more strategically. And it's interesting that you sort of mentioned the lines you know, a big part, you know, we don't necessarily see those lines every week, every place all the time anymore, but that's a lot, I think just a lot of the process has changed. You know, not every store will do first come first serve anymore and create those lines for, you know, for a lot of reasons, you know, some will do online releases or they'll do raffles or they'll do other methods. And, and I think that's really the, the thing that all brands and retailers have been searching for in this space for the last call it three years is like, what is the right way to create equitable distribution of, of limited products? And, and how do you balance that? And, you know, at StockX, one of the things that we think we're doing is providing an alternate to that, right? And, and when we did the, the release with the AirZoom generation with Nike um, last year, we did it as a Dutch auction. I mean, it was like a true Dutch auction where, you know, there were, there were 46 of these special packages, but we cleared it at, at the lowest price and then allow people to continue to resell it. So there's a lot of different options. And I think as brands get out of this idea of like, it has to be released at this price, at this time, in this manner, and become more creative, I, I think it just becomes more interesting for everybody. Hey, Josh, it's John. Um, congrats again on all the success. I've been, been following the story for a while. Thank and, you. Uh, Appreciate it. You, you know, yeah, sure. And, and I, I just, every time I think about StockX or, or read an article in Forbes or, or wherever, you guys seem to be everywhere. Uh, I always ask myself, what's your biggest threat? So if we could shift a little and, and look into the future, um, what does StockX look like in two, three, four years in terms of uh, competitors and, and related to that? Uh, do you think your your biggest threat is is the consumer? Meaning, you know, in the primary markets, average you know selling price of a shoes, you know, sixty bucks or seventy bucks. I, I'm just curious on the overall luxury market. Do you, what do you see that doing over the next couple of years and related to StockX? Yeah, so I mean that's a good question, and and 
you know, obviously we think about that a lot here. As a starting point, there's two ways that StockX grows, right? One is as any, you know, marketplace business would grow, whereas we just continue to add other product categories. And even within the categories that we have today, the sneakers, streetwear, watches, and bags, we can continue to add more products. So, I mean, literally just two days ago, we added uh, Supreme Skate Decks to the streetwear um, part of the site. And, you know, overnight that, that ended up, you know, probably somewhere between 10 to $15 million annual GMV um, by just adding that group of products um, to a category that we already had. But, you know, maybe the next category becomes art prints or it becomes, you know, collector uh, toys, you know, Star Wars figures or something like that. So there's ways that we grow that way. And when you look at the threats that way, in every one of those categories, we're going to have competition, right? There, there are people today that sell uh, art prints. There are people today that sell skate decks, right? But our hypothesis is that, you know, our model based on how the stock market works is a better model for certain product categories. And we've proven that in sneakers in, you know, being 28 months old and now being, you know, by far the largest, you know, um, marketplace for, for sneakers, for the secondary market. And so, um, you know, we're sort of waiting for a big player to start copying the model itself. Honestly, that becomes the, the only thing that, that becomes a real threat to us because we just think that it's a, it's a superior model. But then the other way we grow is, as we were sort of alluding to earlier, it's continuing to work with brands and to literally IPO consumer goods and, and to create alternate channel of releasing certain products. You know, and in that lane, the biggest threat is, I mean, I'll call it a threat, right? But the biggest challenge to doing that is that it's really changing the mindset of how brands have released products. And, um, and I think that, you know, like I said, the way I view it is like ticketing is like 10 years ahead of us and sneakers are happening now. And the rest of the, like the new luxury economy, particularly we play like watches and handbags, like I feel like that's 10, 15 years behind. Like I could never see Rolex today doing what Nike did last year to release a, a product directly on StockX. But that's fine, right? It's a long game. We have to get there. So that's the real challenge for us in that part of, of how we grow our business. Yeah, and then just to follow on to that, um, I think I read maybe this article is a little old, but you know some expansion plans and internationally, and and just curious on uh, you must be looking your chops over over the Asian consumer because they love luxury goods. Have you guys done anything internationally yet? Yeah, so look, StockX is a website, so you know anyone in the world today can buy or sell. I mean, except for you know like the bad countries like North Korea and stuff. But you know, otherwise, you know, <laughs> right? Everyone can buy or sell. And um, but we don't uh, we don't really have a true um, international uh, business, right? We don't have uh, currency, we don't have language, we don't have um, international uh, offices, supply chain, authentication centers, local customer service, local content. So that's really the the, the focus for us. And honestly, the the highest priority right now, or kind of one of the sort of top three big priorities for us right now, um, is Europe. And, um, you know, Europe, for a lot of reasons, is, is easier to get into than Asia. Um, and Asia, you know, takes true strategic partners to really figure out how to operate on the ground. And each country is, is significantly different. Um, so we do have decent customers in those countries. But, you know, a lot of our, our customers in China today are actually uh, people in San Diego or in Oregon or in L.A. or Seattle that are they're ordering thousands of pairs from us and having them drop ship to all to the same location that are clearly being put on a container and sent back over, you know, because our site's not in Chinese and, and you know, we're not on, we, you know, WeChat or, or, or 
um, all that. So yeah, I mean, that's a big part of how we grow. But you know, at the most basic level today, anyone in the world can still buy from stuff. Josh, you talked about authentication. And, and you know, when you talk about luxury goods, of course, one of the big, you know, the next sentence, people talk about counterfeiting and counterfeit goods. You know, what I mean, what's been your experience about that? I mean, is, has has your clientele been pretty good about, I mean, authentic material? Or have you run into a lot of counterfeit goods? Yeah, so you know, one of the the um, unique aspects of our business is is we physically authenticate every single product that that's sold on StockX, sneakers, streetwear, watches, handbags, and the way it works is after the sale happens, the seller will ship it to us. Today we have two operations authentication centers, one in Detroit, one in Tempe, Arizona. We're actually about to open up one in Northern Jersey and then somewhere in Europe. And you know, the the purpose of that is obviously to to make sure that only you know, authentic goods pass through. We also make sure that, you know, the right size passes through and the right product and someone doesn't send a used pair and just everything around that, like the product is what it's supposed to be. And that if there is an issue from the buyer, they have a single source. They know they can come back to us. They don't have to track down some random seller through PayPal and, and figure it out. And so it just creates a, a better experience and it allows us to create that standardized experience, which is necessary for how the, the stock market works, right? The best way to think about that is like, you never worry you're gonna get a fake share of Nike stock from the New York Stock Exchange, right? And right, and, and sort of have that level of, of, of confidence in that. But, you know, it was interesting sort of asking around what we see when we first started the business, the, the fake rate that we saw was like 12, 15%. And we were like, man, this business is never gonna work if it's like that. But today, like the amount of fakes we see is actually less than 2%. And the reason why is because if you have a pair of fake sneakers and you want to try to scam somebody, like go to eBay, go to somewhere where they don't check, right? Like you're, you're stupid to try to send it through us where you know people are checking. So most of the fakes that we see are people that they genuinely don't know they have a fake sneaker, right? We have to be the bearer of bad news. Someone sold it to them and, and be a part of it. So just because of the fact that we check, we get a lot less. Hey, Josh, I want to encourage our listeners to listen to your TED Talk because in, in preparation for this interview, I, th I think it's exceptional and it certainly it, it tells the, the longer story. Uh, but we'll, we'll uh, get you out of here on, on this. Uh, what, what is Dan Gilbert wearing these days? I love that you asked this question today. So, you know, um, the thing, Dan, um, you know, who's been partnering this for me since the beginning um, and is just an absolute extraordinary partner to have. Um, is not a sneaker guy. And I used to joke that, you know, it's been three years and I, and I still can't even get him to wear sneakers. Um, he literally wears the same pair of like boots every day. He's just got this pair of boots that he likes. And, um, but we had an all company meeting um, uh, two weeks ago and StockX, which we're now up to over 350 people, which is just crazy. Um, yeah. And, um, and so as part of the meeting, we did this little fireside chat with sort of me and him, you know, on stage. And without telling me, without telling anyone else, he came out wearing a pair of Nike Yeezy 2 Red Octobers, which, you know, is a $6,000 shoe and is as iconic as it comes. And like everyone in the company knows that like Dan's not a sneaker guy, but it was just, it was awesome. He, he got a standing ovation from everyone. There's pictures on my Instagram of it. Like it, it's awesome. So yeah. So when, he, when he's not wearing his, his everyday boots, apparently he, he now wears Red October. So it was pretty extraordinary. <laughs> Josh, what's your Instagram handle? Uh, it is uh, is jluber31. In the days where uh, we created our social handles, were, or where, what our emails were at the time, I've always said I should change that. But it's jluber31. That's my personal. You usually get a lot of pictures of 
of what I'm doing um, related to StockX. Well, there's a chance Neil will be on Instagram now, and there goes that platform. My daughter, my daughter banned me from Instagram, so I'm not allowed on it. <laughs> hey, Josh, we we can't thank you enough. Really appreciate uh, it. Keep up the great work. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You know, Neil's, you know, one of the very first people I met in this industry and has been an unbelievable supporter. And, you know, Neil, I thank you. And, and obviously anything I can do to, to help you guys, I'm here. You're welcome, Josh. Josh, thank you. Thanks, thanks a lot. Guys. Thanks, yep. Josh. Okay, bye. Thank our guest, Josh Luber from StockX, our sound engineer, Tyrone Lippman. This podcast would not be possible if not for our partnership with the Washington, D.C. office of cable TV, film, music, and entertainment. Our mayor, Muriel Bowser, our friends at 202 Creates. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Be sure to rate us. Until next time, play hard or at least look good doing it.